You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors, giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. Greetings, uh, I'm Jim Finley. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our time here together, turning to, for guidance, to the Christian mystic St. Teresa of Avila, in her classic work, The Interior Castle. And uh, we've come now to the point of this journey into our own soul, into the seventh innermost mansion of uh, this uh, deep union with God. We come to the point of the, of, of the sixth mansion, which chapter one, she sets the tone for the whole thing and kind of singles out the essence of the matter. She writes, Let us now, with the help of the Holy Spirit, come to speak of the sixth mansions, in which the soul has been wounded with love for the spouse and seeks more opportunity of being alone, trying as far as possible to one in its state, to renounce everything which it can disturb it in this, its solitude. That side of him which it has had, which has had, is so deeply impressed upon it that its whole desire is to enjoy it once more. Nothing, I must repeat, is seen in this state of prayer, which can be said to be really seen, even by the imagination. I use the word sight because of the comparison that I made. The soul is now completely determined to take no other spouse, but the spouse disregards its yearnings for the conclusion of the betrothal desiring that they should become still deeper and that this greatest of all blessings should be won by the soul at some cost to itself. And although everything is but slight importance by comparison with the greatness of the gain, I assure you, daughters, that if the soul is to bear its trials, it has no less need of the sign and token of this gain, which it now holds. O oh my God, how great are those trials which the soul must suffer, both within and without, before it enters the seventh mansion. I'd like to reflect on this. <clears throat> you know, as we go back to the very beginning, uh, to, to the first mansion, even before the first mansion, uh, we, we can see how the path, in a way, consists of the, the impetus or the direction that's set in motion in being a wounded with love. For that is to say, even before we entered the first mansion, that is, even when we were still lost in the complexities and, 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 and uh, compromises and struggles, of a life completely caught up in the external circumstances and events. There was, a, there was a, an event that happened, or a series of events, in which we began from the seventh mansion, God's quietly reaching out and touching our heart with a sense of discontent, like there's something missing here, like something important. And what's important is this interiority of myself, that what's important is for the first time God becomes real to me. And by turning towards God and seeking to draw closer to God, I might be grounded in something 
this qualitatively deeper than the complexities and the turmoils of which I had become so caught up. And so moved by that, one enters the first mansion and one starts getting one's bearings, getting newly, newly acclimated to what it's like to turn to this love that has touched our heart and is drawing us to itself. And there we found also, um, we're caught up in a divided heart. In a, in a divided heart, uh, we, we, we feel uh, that we're wounded with love. That is, we're wounded with the desire for a yet greater love not yet realized. And that, 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 that gift of that wounding of love, of a consummated longing, is the impetus that moves us to move in closer to the second mansion where it deepens and into the third mansion. And so that the whole process then is one of being wounded by a love that we glimpsed, what we know is there, but we're wounded in that we've not yet realized it. And so we're prompted and moved by love to move towards gaining that love and to be stabilized in it that we might be so transformed by love and find the fulfillment and draw closer to the fulfillment that we long for. Such is the nature of the path. Like this. And um, in the first three mansions then, we see that really all this takes place, we might think of as a, in reflective, intentional consciousness. That is, inspired by God, uh, we, it's, we're moved by our desire to respond to God's grace through our efforts to be faithful to meditation, to be faithful to prayer, to be faithful to deepening our, our love for God and deepening our love for our neighbor as efficacious unto holiness, as efficacious unto holiness. And so we live this life, this is our life. And so we live by faith, by this obscure certainty in our heart. The measure of this faith is this love, and we live by hope. And the hope is that when we pass through the veil of death, we will pass beyond these mediations of God's presence in our belief, God's presence in our intentions, God's presence in our aspirations, God's presence in our mystery. And we'll move into um, an, an, an unmediated, infinite union with infinite love, in which we'll know God with God's own knowledge of God, which is Christ, and we'll love God with God, go the love of God, which is the Holy Spirit, and God will be all in all as our eternal destiny, which is the consummation of God's will for us in creating us in the first place, that we might live in this glory of shared uh, boundaryless divinity uh, forever. It's our destiny. Um, but here she says, in this third phase, psychological spiritual maturity, uh, which is a life of virtue, which is efficacious unto holiness, uh, she says we can begin to realize that, there's, that we're touched by a love, or drawn to a, a love that is yet deeper and leaves us somehow discontent in this, um, in the experience of ourselves, in our ego-based consciousness, illumined by faith, by grace, by love, because um, she says we, we we realize the problem is, is that reason has not yet been conquered by love. It's entirely too reasonable. It's entirely too virtuous on our terms. That we do go sailing, we do see God, but we are always careful to keep the shore in view. We're always circling back around to be sure we can safely get back to our own reference points in our own journey. And feeling that discontent, the flow of God's presence coming from the innermost seventh mansion, touching us with the gift of this discontent, we move into a place where we start the, the, the remaining mansions, which are more and more overtly mystical of divine favors, gravitating toward divine union. Again, don't forget, the, the, the currency of the land here is holiness, the desire to do God's will of heightened love for God and heightened love for neighbor, walking our walk and our daily life with other people as life in the circumstances in which we find ourselves, and so on. But, but they're, 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 it was, what happens with some people in this hope for eternal life is that God decides not to wait until we're dead 
to begin to touch us with the taste of unmediated infinite union with God. In other words, what starts to happen, she says in the fourth mansion, what starts to happen is that we're sitting in prayer in our Lexio Divina, in our meditation, in our, in our loving dialogue with God, in our prayer, the desire of our heart. And the, the devotional sincerity and fidelity to the quiet rendezvous with God, it reaches a certain point where we fall into kind of a quiet, she says, or we go into a state of absorption, which is kind of accessibility to the deeper place, a kind of a quiet uh, fascination. And in that state, we begin to intuit, it's very subtle at first, it's very subtle. We begin to sense, this is one way of putting it, that the infinite loving presence of God is quietly pouring itself out, is quietly emptying itself, is quietly in a self-donating act of love, infusing itself in a sovereign, vast, unexplainable way into the intimate immediacy of our very presence, the intimate immediacy of our innermost subjective sense of our, ver our very presence, or giving the, rise to a state of transubjective communion that at this point is subtle. It's noon. We know not quite what to make of it, but as it arises within us, we rest in it. We intuitively recognize it. And um, the, the water's pouring in without our effort, our hearts being enlarged to divine proportions. And we live this way in our daily life. And in the fifth mansion, this influx of God pouring into the soul, in the presence infusing itself into the presence of ourself, it becomes so pure and so delicate and so vast that the, the, the finite ego graced by God being finite cannot be the recipient of this infinite union. And so we're sitting there and we go into a sleep, meaning it be, the, love, the love becomes so delicate, we disappear from ourself in reflective consciousness, in our own finite reflective awareness of ourself, and in a sleep. And in that sleep, as the self sleeps, this innermost seventh mansion part of ourselves tends free and clear. In a moment, and here I'm paraphrasing from Mary Froelock on the inner subjectivity of the mystic and Teresa of Avila, and also her, quoting her Professor Price on the, this way of putting it. I think it's very succinct. That what happens then, in this, while this ego sleeps, is it consciousness as consciousness. That is, it's not the consciousness of anything. And likewise, it's, there's no intentionality in it, and that nothing is missing. There's nothing to intend. And in, that, and in that state of consciousness as consciousness, resting in communion with the abyss, boundaryless, abyss-like, infinite consciousness of God in a transubjective communion that is in heaven, in God, before the origins of the universe, in which in creating us, God is placed in the very center of our own soul. As the ego sleeps, we now move into that, that innermost in some sense, uncreated part of us moves into that sweet communion so that when we return, it washes back over us. It washes back over us with a certainty that we can't explain, that we were in God, God was in us. It moves back over us of a desire to do God's will in all things. Not just, um, see, how, how with every situation, how would Christ understand the situation? What would Christ's attitude be towards the situation? How would Jesus act in response to the situation? I'm more and more committed to that Christ-like concreteness in my day by day. And I live, I realize like the cocoon emerging, uh, the, the, the butterfly, like a butterfly emerging from the cocoon, from its going into this hidden place of the cocoon, or a butterfly with tattered wings. This is not the beloved, this is not the beloved, this is not the beloved. But tattered how so? 
See, and here's, here's the sixth mansion, I think. I think the sixth mansion is that you were wounded by a love, not the, not the love of the first three mansions, in which we're moved to a greater response of love through our effort with God's grace to love and so on, but rather that hidden moment of that communion of infinite union with infinite love, it washes back over us with having tasted that such a love that we're wounded with that love in which our heart will remain forever discontent in being exiled or estranged and not being able to find our way to rest in that love. How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they found, after they found Paris? See? Having tasted the unexplainable, having tasted the infinite, the intimacy of the infinite, infinitely giving itself to us, or then wounded by this desire. And we're wounded by it according to our state. I think it can mean also the state of our soul on this journey, but also I think our state of life. Remember she said, I think in the fourth mansion, you know, she said she was a cloistered nun and that was her state. She said, but married people experiences according to their state. And within the fabric of the marriage itself as a calling, it has this potential to uh, be the pathway by which one is quickened by this and called to this. The one can, if one has children, one's being a parent, it can have this abyss-like death dimension of experiencing this call or the lure of this infinite union in these disarming interactions with their children. Or if one, if one teaches children or in one's work, or if one lives alone, or one takes long walks alone in the midst of nature, or one is called to be a poet or an artist, whatever the modality is in which the quickening occurs, we're to surrender and be faithful to this stirring of that which has granted itself to us in this moment of the modality that we're in. That's why we're right at the edge of spiritual direction. It's concretely present in our life like this. And, um, and so she, she says here, nothing is seen from this point on. Seen meaning nothing is, not, it's nothing is seen by our finite eyes. See, nothing is seen. And likewise, nor can it be imagined. See, because it's, it's, it's unimaginable. St. Paul, it has in our minds what God has prepared for those who love him. And what God has prepared is this infinite union with the infinite love of God is what God is preparing. And so our finiteness can't grasp it. But I will say this about Teresa, that we can imagine the unimaginable because we've experienced it. See, I think this can even happen in human love and creativity. That is, all of a sudden, you find yourself in the midst of the unimaginable, having tasted the unimaginable part of the subtlety of all of this. That is now you're being blessed with the desire for more, not more of all this. That is, it's not more of what you can attain or lose, not more of what you comprehend or don't comprehend, not of what you can achieve or don't achieve, not more of that, but rather that which is infinitely more than the sum total of all of this that is pouring itself out and giving itself away and wholly permeating and is the reality of the sum total of all this. That's the paradoxical kind of sense of this incarnate infinity, I think, like this. In other words, you start to, to realize see, what Jesus tells us in the gospel. You start to realize that, that uh, I, you can say in the presence of God, you know, that, that I, I, you reveal to me, Lord, that I am your beloved. And that you're, you're, you're giving yourself to me whole and complete, the very essence of who you are, pouring itself out and infusing itself into the intimate immediacy, the very essence of who I am, producing a state of transubjective communion beyond words, beyond explanation. I can't explain it, but I know it's true because I fleetingly taste it. 
and um, I'm, I'm wounded w w with, with a love that will be discontent without it, and you yourself are the author of my discontent. So the sixth mansion then, we're in this kind of quality, we're in kind of this vulnerable, subtle place. And she starts walking through the sixth mansion, because what starts to happen in the sixth mansion is instead of union taking place temp fleetingly, as in the fifth mansion, and washing back over you with its effects on you, that the raptures continue to happen, and they continue to happen in even deeper ways, sometimes to the point she says she believes there's moments you don't even breathe. In a way, you're dying of love is what's happening. That you're dying of love. You're dying of love to the point that this infinite love of God is transforming you into itself to the point that there's nothing left of you but love. And since God is love and you are who you are in the love, the union is realized like this unexplainably. And um, um, she also says in these deepening raptures, which can occur, everyone's different. I mean, if this does start to happen to a person, everyone's God just loves ways. It is also noting by the rapture is one, there tends to be a state of absorption after the rapture. And the absorption state, what is the absorptive state, remember? It's that, uh, again, paraphrasing Mary Froley, uh, that a semi-voluntary state of quiet fascination that can last for days afterwards, like in a kind of a delicate luminosity where we're, the smallest of things is translucent to the presence of this love that's infusing itself into the day by day like this. It also starts happening while you're awake. It can also start happening across the whole spectrum, moving back and forth across the whole spectrum of your experience of yourself in the day-by-day -day reality of your daily passage through time as a human being. And what starts to happen, again, is that the... Uh, is that there is this, again, paraphrasing Mary Follick here on this, because it so rings so true to me as a succinct way to put it, is that what starts to happen is that this infinite union with infinite love, it isn't just that in reflective intentional consciousness is transcended in the sleep which you cross over into this union, where that union begins to reconfigure or transform intentional consciousness itself. That is to say, there, there is your love for God that is a response and an echo of God's infinite love for you. But what starts to happen is that the infinite love of God is quietly infusing itself into your love so that your love and God's love begins to, to meet and merge in a transsubjective communion of love. Where Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The life is at once God's life and our own life is one life, is one love. And likewise, in your reflective consciousness, it isn't just, it isn't just simply that you're reflecting in Lexio Divina on the things of God, engaging in this meditatio, this discursive, and, and so on, of insight. But rather, it, it, your growing knowledge of God, you realize that God's infinite knowledge of God is infusing and pouring itself into and giving itself to and identifying itself with your knowledge. So that in your knowing is a gnosis, um, this, this, this deep knowing of, of mystical spiritual wisdom, of this transubjective knowing. And the fruit of rapture, she's the, the mark of rapture, then, is certainty. Is certainty. That is, it's, it's not the certainty that it, that's an assertion. It's a certainty that in this state of rapture, 
there is this clarity, she says, in which you are shown the secrets of God and the secret of God's way, so that in the rapturous state of this transubjective communal state of knowing, there is clarity. But in your day-by-day -day consciousness, there's no way to explain that clarity, because it's not explainable. It's not explainable. Um, but you can bear witness to it, which is her book. All these mystical teachers will see that, that the teachings are kind of sacramental embodiments. This language in the service of the unsayable, the logos, the power of the word, the intimations and cadences of the mystic teacher's voice embody this unexplainable intimate unity so that in the reading of it, in a vulnerable way, it begins to resonate with us and it starts drawing us uh, into itself. This reconfiguring. She also says here another piece of this. It's the long, it's the longest chapter in the whole uh, longest mansion. So I'm just touching on the key thing to give us a flavor for it. She says, um, one kind of rapture. This is the fourth chapter. I love this. It's very nice. She's kind of walking through these different modalities of these things that can occur because they happen to her. And in doing spiritual direction with the sisters and so on, she can know how different ways it, hap it happens. And she's letting us know the reality of what's possible. And by the way, don't forget, we were saying earlier, reflection, that in the mystical body, what's given to one of us belongs to all of us. And so for the mystic teacher reveals us to ourselves. It's true. We may not on this earth experience this fullness until we cross over into our own glory. But it is true that even though we might not be experiencing these things to the fullness which we've experienced them, we'll be talking about this in the next talk, it also in some way resonates and is present within us and is given to all of us collectively as the grace. One kind of rapture is this, she says, this is the one, two, I think, second paragraph of fourth chapter. The soul, though not actually engaged in prayer, is struck with some word which it either remembers or hears spoken of God. His majesty is moved with compassion at having seen the soul suffering so long, that is, with these unconsummated longings, through its yearnings for him, and seems to be causing the spark of which we have already spoken to grow within it, so that like the phoenix, the flaming phoenix, it catches fire and springs into new life. One may piously believe that the sins of such a soul are pardoned, assuming that it is in its proper disposition and has used the means of grace as the church teaches. When it is thus cleansed, God unites it with himself in a way which none can understand, save it and he and even the soul itself does not understand this in such a way as to be able to speak of it afterwards. That is to say, there are moments where the infinite love of God draws you into a communal oneness with God, a oneness that no one can understand except you and God. To love the Lord your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, with all your soul. It's utterly unique thing that each of us is this utterly unique manifestation uh, of this uh, communal uh, mystery. So here's what's happening. Let me put it another way. Let's put it another way. Is that there's this paradoxical uh, alchemy of these blissful touches of, of unconsummated longing. There's that pain, like the delectable sweet death of that pain. But also what's happening is God's moving back and forth and back and forth, kind of unwinding the, the, the threads in which you still see security and identity in anything less than an infinite union with infinite love. And so she starts talking about this, how the solitude of this way, and speaking of the solitude, which adds to its suffering, the one who's been let out, I will lead her into the desert and speak to her heart. The Lord is also in the habit of sending the most grievous infirmities 
This is as much greater trial, especially if the pains are severe in some ways, when they are very acute. I think they are the greatest earthly trials that exist. The, greater, the greatest exterior trials, I mean, however many a soul may suffer. I repeat that it is not only the very acute pains that I am referring to, for they affect the soul both outwardly and inwardly, till it becomes so much oppressed as to not know what it is to do with itself. It would much rather suffer any martyrdom than those pains. And I would suggest here, and she's talking about her own life, the things that she suffered physically is in a way this starts understanding the mystical potentialities of trauma. That sometimes, it isn't just that sometimes life gives us sometimes almost more than we can bear. Sometimes we're immersed in what is more than we can bear. And although it is horrendous and risky, we need to devote ourselves to being protective and safe and nurturing, not to contribute to it, to do what we can to be delivered from it if, 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 if it is our misfortune to have to endure that. But also we can discover that also is part of the great unraveling, the great undoing. See, what is it, even if everything were lost, is never lost because it doesn't belong to me, if it belongs completely to God being given to me in the midst of my pain and loss. She also says here that, um, What starts to happen is that people, it's hard to get spiritual direction if you can't find a contemplative spiritual direction. That's why she's such a treasure to have this. And so she, she says on page, this is um, chapter one. I know of a person, I think it's herself, to whom these things were happening and who was terribly afraid there would be nobody willing to hear her confession. But there was so much I could say about it that I will not stop I will not stop to tell it here. She goes into this in her life, in the, the volume of her life. The last, the last of all one's life long, that lasts all of one's life long, people warn each other to be careful. And here's the point I want to make. Um, I was once, when I was right out of high school, I was with Thomas Merton in the monastery. We were talking about this. And... Um, uh, he, he, he said to me, he said, once in a while, uh, you'll find someone with whom you can talk about such things, but they're hard to find. And um, so sometimes a, a spiritual director or a spiritual guide who has not himself or herself been touched or sensitive to this, uh, you, uh, you go to them and you can tell they don't. And this is especially concerning because she's always careful for the need for discernment because we're subject to self-deception. She's always laying down the markers for the priorities of discernment. By your fruit you shall know them. And what am I, am I going through that which is increasing my love for God and reciprocity for God's infinite love for me? And it's this reciprocity of this infinite love between God and myself deepening my love for my neighbor, for the world. Uh, this criterion of love. And I also think it, it, there's a kind of a groundedness about it where you're kind of honoring the, honoring the givens of your life, um, kind of the delicate balance of um, being humbly kind of established in the realities of your day-by-day -day walk. She also says here, what starts to happen here is that people don't understand what's happening to you. Just, I think this can be very painful if somebody you love very much, maybe your spouse or your lover or your friend, and you try to explain this thing that's happening, you don't know how to put words to it. And they, they don't know what you're talking about. And they don't know what's talking about. It's okay. You know, they, they, they don't understand it because you don't understand it either in a way you could explain. It's harder if they're dismissive towards it. They question it. What also happens is some people think you're a troublemaker. That is, some people think you're just trying to, you know, attention-seeking behavior kind of thing. And by the way, I think there's always a kind of, we're always discreet about it. I mean, we're, we're, we're sensitive to kind of the delicacy of this. We don't go around talking about it until an occasion arises to speak of it. And then sometimes on that occasion, people respond in these 
uh, is it lack empathy and understanding? She says, some people think you're trouble, confused or whatever. And she says, other people also trouble and they think you're holy. And um, she says, they don't understand that it's not you, it's God. And that, um, uh, that you're like a, 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 a broken, precious, infinitely loved broken person, just like they are. And so there is this kind of solitude, which as we'll see in the seventh mansion, in that very solitude draws you in closer to everybody at a deeper level. And finally, then here, well, here, where she talks about visions and locutions. And visions are, um, again, she points out that none of, some people have very deep, first of all, what matters is holiness. And some deep, there's some people that are more holy than those who never have these experiences than those who do. And secondly, there is a, a deep union in which some people do not have these extraordinary manifestations of locutions and visions which call for their own discernment. Um, but in speaking of, um, of visions, locutions, uh, she, um, way to summarize this. First of all, in discernment, she says, we never know for certain the uh, the nature of these experiences because of self-deception. Because sometimes it's just psychological. It may be great psychological, the stirring up of the imagination in a kind of a fervent thing and so on. Um, it can be from the powers of darkness, self-deception. And... Um, and so what we're really looking for then are is this, the signs of the authenticity of these things. One is the certainty. One, secondly, by their fruits, they have the fruit of this heightened love and surrender to God and to, to other people, to the world through love. And also their undying clarity in your heart that is even though maybe it was years ago that you were touched this way, you need to be touched this way once. It's as, it's as fresh and vibrant to you like the gate of heaven flew open. And so, and speaking of these visions, she says one kind of vision is a, is a corporeal vision. She, she was an ecstatic mystic. And in this corporeal vision, um, I'm going to start with locutions. I'm sorry, with, with hearing a word. I'm going to start with hearing a word. It's the same criteria for both. One is auditory, one is, is visual. And corporeal locutions are those, um, are those which is actually heard by the physical power of hearing. That is, it is as if you hear God silently whispering in your ear. You hear it, you actually hear it as a voice. It's corporeal. Those around you don't hear it, but you perceive it as that which is physically heard interiorly. The other locution is that you don't hear it uh, as a voice in your ear, but it's imaginary, but you hear it in your imagination. That is, you interiorly hear it in your graced imagination. And in, in, and in spiritual or intellectual locutions, um, is that the, the spirituality is the, the three signs we're given about its fruits, increased love for God and neighbor. This is the clarity and the sustaining clarity of it in your mind and heart long afterwards. But also another, she sometimes calls them intellectual uh, locution. So what happens is that it produces, that God directly says it within you and directly produces what it says. So if you interiorly hear the words, don't be afraid, you're not afraid. Be at peace, and you're at peace. It achieves unexplainably within you uh, what it says. And um, in, in, uh, in visions, same way sometimes the person may experience it as that they're actually, don't forget something here, is that sometimes, these things are experienced in a state of rapture. That is, you're in a heightened state of uh, this um, transubjective lucid luminosity. And in that thing, 
there's appearances. The Christ appears, or Mary appears, or an angel appears, or a dead loved one appears, or a saint appears, Teresa appears. And, uh, and, and sometimes, too, when you're being, like in this sixth mansion, being permeated through your whole day, you're being transformed in all of this. Uh, you can have one of these, you can see something while you're awake, not in rapture at all. Um, we're sharing the story that we did with Mirabai Star Kirsten when she interviewed us. I don't know if you've heard it yet or not. No, you will. Actually. Is um, when I was in Avila through the kindness of Karen and Mace, and um, we got to be in her cell where she was in the comet of the incarnation outside the walls of the city of Avila there. And um, her name and religion was Saint Sister Teresa of Jesus. And um, the Christ child appears in her room, and the Christ, Christ child says to her, who are you? And she's taken aback by not just seeing Christ, but asking her who she is, and she's in her own cell, in the monastery where she lives. And she says, her name is Sister Teresa of Jesus. And she says, so who are you? She said, I'm, she said, I'm Teresa of Jesus, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus. I'm, she said, I'm Teresa of Jesus, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus of Teresa. And so there is this actual seeing of things. It raises very mysterious things about seeing the dead or seeing, if, 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 like we're living our life in the vast interiority of God. And so if all the dead and all the angels and all the saints are here with us, and if we're dying to everything less than love, is there a kind of a lucid, luminous kind of open up for kind of an interior uh, seeing? And is there also imaginative seeing that in your imagination you interiorly see it, you, you realize it within yourself? And intellectual vision to that you, you know it. That is, she says you don't see Jesus as an imagine, or you don't see it in an imaginary way in the intellectual vision, but rather you just know that God is right there with you. And that state of God's knowing of God right there with you in this, quote, intellectual vision, that, can, that state can last for days afterwards, like you're living your day-by-day -day life in this open, expressed thing of God's oneness with you in the details of the day-by-day of the -day life. And, um, uh, and, and so, um, she compares this to imaginary visions. The imaginary visions tend to be very fleeting. Another thing she says about imaginary visions is the light. That you see everything Jesus said, let there be light. God said, let there be light. You're seeing everything in the celestial light of God. Jesus said, I, I am the light. And I think maybe this light is very similar sometimes when dying people have these near-death experiences and the experience of seeing a light end of a tunnel as the light of God, like a, a celestial light, not of this world, intimately seen. And um, so I'll... I'll uh, I'll, I'll end here. I'll end here. And, and, um, and so the next time, uh, we'll, we'll go through the seventh mansion, mystical marriage. See, that the, the some people put it this way. Uh, some people know about God. Other people in the first three mansions are in a relationship with God. Other people in this nuptial Im imagery, these nuptial mystics, inspired by the Song of Songs, the Old Testament. This nuptial love is the primary metaphor of this union. It is it some people realize they're starting to fall in love with God, who from all eternity is in, in, unexplainably in love with them. And then you realize that God asks you to be engaged to God like betrothal. I wonder if we can wear an item. See, let's be engaged, which is, which is the sixth mansion, this betrothal. And then in the seventh mansion, we'll see that some people then become married to God, like mystical marriage, where this then crosses over into a permanent state, a grace permanent state. So we'll talk about that. And then I want to bring it down to earth like she does 
on all the resonance and reverberations of these unitive, uh, mysterious, uh, kind of the, the divinity, the incomprehensible stature and divinity of things kind of um, resonates and moves within us. And um, so let's, let's end here with this prayer. The brief sitting. So I invite you then to um, sit straight and uh, fold your hands in prayer while be seated and bow. Repeat after me. Be still and know I am God. Be still and know I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be.
bow. Let's slowly say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Mary, Mother of Contemplatives, pray for us. St. John of the Cross, pray for us. St. Teresa of Avila, pray for us. Blessings till next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.